Welcome to the Wedding Wisdom Podcast. My name is Doug Winters, and I will be your host and trusty guide in attempting to demystify the entire daunting process of planning the perfect wedding. In a casual interview format, I'll be talking to the top industry professionals so you can hear directly from them exactly what it is they actually do. The event coordinators, musicians, florists, dress designers, photographers, and even maitre d's that you'll be trusting to make your wedding an unforgettable experience. Hit me up on either Twitter at WedWisdomPod or Facebook at Doug Winters BKS and let me know who you'd like me to have on and what questions you'd like me to ask. And as I remind every couple that I play for, this will inevitably be the most expensive party you'll ever throw. But remember, it's still a party. So try and enjoy yourselves. Let's do the show. Welcome to Episode 7, my conversation with Ronnie Davis. Ronnie is nothing short of a living legend in this industry and really a pioneer in the concept of being an event producer, which is something that he will explain to you a lot better than I could right now. So sit back and relax and listen to my conversation with Ronnie, um, who is truly one of the great people in this industry and one of the people that make this industry great. My friend, golf buddy, and mentor, Ronnie Davis. Well, hi, Ron. Um, hi, how are you, Doug? Good. How's your golf game? Uh, my back hurts. I haven't played in a few months. <laughs> okay. Um, but I'm going out to Arizona next week, and hopefully I'll play a round or two. Okay. Um, I was born in Philadelphia to a kosher catering family. Uh, my grandfather was a caterer, and my father was a caterer, and my great uncle was a caterer. And I was more or less raised with not any choice in what I was supposed to be when I grew up except being a caterer. Um, the only thing that was different was by the time I was, I worked, I started in the kitchen peeling eggs and running up and down the stairs on Passover and um, Rosh Hashanah selling gefilte fish. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I would take tips because I was cute and my grandfather would make me share the tips. Oh, and, that's not um, Then I became a coat check boy when I was nine. And same thing. I got a lot of tips from my grandfather. Now, when you say caterer, what did they own? They owned catering halls. He was they were they were he was one of the larger kosher caterers in Philadelphia. He had about at one point he had thirteen synagogues exclusively, and he had the Drake Hotel, and he had a other catering hall of his own. Wow, I didn't know there was a Drake Hotel in Philly. Yeah, just in yeah, Chicago. He was, he was partners with Jack Kelly, with Grace Kelly's um, brother. No. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, if you want to go back, my legacy is that they opened up a nightclub, the first after-hours nightclub in Philadelphia, on January the 1st, 1950, on New Year's Eve. And my mother went into labor. And I was born... With you? Uh, yes, and I was born the next day. I was born at 1 o'clock in the morning on January the 2nd. But um, they renamed the club, and they called it the RD Club. Oh, right. And so I had a legacy of basically being an alcoholic. Uh, <laughs> And the club was there for a very long time, um, but it's you know that's that's the, the, the point. The point is that service and catering is in my blood and has always been in my blood. And in, even though I went to Villanova and I, I took classes at Villanova Law School and I tried to be other things, I keep coming back to and always kept coming back to the catering world. I left my family business when I was sixteen. I started working for non-kosher caterers because I discovered that there was such a thing in the world as Gentiles. And, uh, <laughs> I loved it, and I loved doing that, and I went to work for Baron Hilton, and I wound up apprenticing under his executive chef, and I thought to myself I wanted to be a chef more than I wanted to be a caterer. Baron Hilton as in? As in Baron Hilton. Yeah. 
And um, then when I was 20, I found myself back at, in Philadelphia uh, working for a non-kosher caterer, um, having a very good time, but also putting myself through Villanova. And, um, oh, while you were at school? Yeah. And then, so were you living home? Because no, I know Vill- no, 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 is no. Villanova in the city? Or? Yeah, I, I, I moved out of my family's house when I was 16. Okay. Um, and so I've been on my but own since I was 16. I stayed in the Philadelphia area at that right. point. Then I, was, uh, then I was married when I was 20. Um, 21 was when I was married. Right. Um, that's early. That's very early. Um, and then I became a father at 22. And subsequently, that marriage didn't work. I, I wound up following my heart to New York. But that's your daughter? Yes. So whatever that was, that was a Oh, that was thing. worth it. It was worth it. I mean, when she, when she Ronnie's was, had this great love affair with his, with his daughter. Well, when she, when she was born, I, I, I retired. I quit my job. And I stayed home, and I basically was Mr. Mom before there was a Mr. Mom. Before Michael Keaton. Yeah, I, I made it a point. I was in the delivery room for her birth. I mean, I've been in love with this child since her first breath. Right. That's um, always the feeling I got with you. She would call. I, I used to hang out in Ronnie's office, and uh, she would call, and everything would stop. Yeah. Sorry. And it still does. Yeah. 44 years later, it still does. That's beautiful. You know, um, she'll always be pumpkin to me. Um, and I have two grandchildren who I... Adore and treat the same way, but I still, I still love my daughter more. So anyway, so then I moved to New York in 1976, and I got involved in a project in Soho called the Wine Bar, which became very successful overnight. It was a wonderful time in New York to be in Soho. There was a great music scene happening. Well, wasn't 76? Wasn't New York kind of funky at the? New York was kind of funky, but there was a lot of young people moving into New York, and there was a lot of new ideas and a lot of great music and the, the punk mute, the punk effort was starting and the, there was a, a new British invasion and, you know, Blondie was at her peak and Madonna was just starting out. I mean, there was this, everyone used to hang out at CBGB's or the Mud Club and, you know, being at the Wine Bar, which was one of the, you know, hotter restaurants in all of Soho at that time, I met lots of people. Uh, I, I, I befriended a lot of people. I got high with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I hung out in places, and it, it just kind of worked out well. Um, I wound up, those were the days of Studio 54 and Xenon, and I'm kind of amazed I'm still alive through all of that, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. Ronnie used to tell me this story that he would go into Studio 54, something that I never did for some reason, and he would say, <laughs> he would say he'd go into the man's room, and it was irrelevant that it was a men's room. It was it was it was a unisex bathroom before they had unisex. Oh bathrooms. Yeah, yeah. And people getting high and having sex in the bathroom. It was like an orgy in the bathroom. And you'd come out and you didn't know who the no. next day you wouldn't even know what you slept with. Which is why, like <laughs> I said, it's amazing that you know, a lot of us lived through that period. Yeah, exactly. But, but anyway, then uh, pre pre AIDS. In nineteen eighty the Democratic Convention came to New York and they put out an RFP for a caterer to do a 6,000-person event at Grace. Wait, what's an RFP? Request for Proposal. Okay. Um, they wanted to do a 6,000-person hosted event for the delegates of the Democratic Convention at Gracie Mansion, hosted by Mayor Koch. And hang on a second, who were the candidates? Was that McGovern? Was that before McGovern? Uh, 84 was McGovern. 1980... 19, 1980 convention, I, I think was uh, Dukakis. Dukakis, right? Might have been Dukakis. No, maybe it was. Maybe it was. It was. Maybe it was McGovern. Uh, whoever. 
Yeah. I don't remember it, honestly. Yeah. I know there was a McCarthy effort, and there was Ted Kennedy effort. And I forget that was 68. That was a long time ago. That was, that's a long time ago. Yeah. But I don't know. I, don't, I really don't remember 1980. <laughs> um, you just remember the working. I just remember that I won the bid. That's what I want to talk I to you wrote, about. I wrote a proposal, yeah. and I wrote, and won the bid. Now, this, see, the point is, at this point, no one in the restaurant business in New York knew that I actually knew something about catering, but I knew more uh-huh. about catering than I did anything else, since that's all I did growing up as a, as a kid. Kosher and non-kosher. Yes. So I wrote this proposal, and I got interviewed, and I won the proposal. And uh, was, I was interviewed by... Dorothy Ashkenazi, who was the director of special events at Gracie Mansion, and her assistant was Ellen Delsner, who was married to Ron Delsner. Ron Delsner, no. Um, They uh, subsequently left politics and started a company called Event Associates, which to this day is still one of the better event uh, planning companies for nonprofits and fundraising companies in the city. Wow. They do Robin Hood, and they do an awful lot of things that are top, top, top notch. But I... they were my very first clients, and I never forgot where I came from. I used from. to do Robin Hood when uh, Paul Tudor Jones. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. No, that's that's their their client. So that's how I started. Was that first event at Gracie Mansion, and I was at the wine bar at the time, and I asked the owner of the wine bar if he wanted to be my partner in the catering business, and he said he'd love to. And I said, well, how about making me a partner in the wine bar? And he said. No, I won't do that. And I said, well, then forget you. And I left, and I started Washington Street Cafe as the second wine bar in New York, down in Tribeca. I was in Tribeca, I think, 30 years too early. But um, <laughs> nonetheless, I was there. Before Robert De Niro moved in and took a, became the mayor. Right. And then I, I started off with uh, well, three restaurants down there at the time. Capsudo Frere okay. opened a few months before me. Odeon had opened about a year before me. And then... Washington Street Cafe, but I ordered to finance Washington Street Cafe. I ran Washington Street Caterers, so I was the owner-operator chef of both, um, and did that until 1986 when I closed the restaurant and just became a full-time caterer. Okay, because when I met you was then, yes, when when the restaurant had closed and it was just called Washington Street Caterers. Correct. Okay, and then I, I um. I, I drove it into uh, being a, one of the top catering companies in New York in a, in a really cool kind of a way. I had a great clientele of show business people and um, did a lot of movie premieres, but I did an awful lot of music business stuff. I was discovered by Bob Krasnow, who was the head of Electra Records at the sure. time. And um, Bob had me uh, do the Grammys in New York for the first time when they came back. And I produced oh. that to great. Is that a Radio City? No, we did it. The, the Grammys were at Radio City, but the event oh, was at Roseland. Roseland yeah. And um, I, to great applause, and I wound up being hired the next year um, for you know for the after party for Warner Music, and mm-hmm. also you know rehearse all the acts that I had and rehearse the bands and the decorator, and I do I I was literally doing everything, not just the catering, but I was producing the entire event. And so, so there were bands. Uh, that were nominated performing? There were nominated bands performing. And they would come in early. And they came in and do sound check early and then they you know, then they, throughout the course of the evening they would perform. So um, it was a it So was, you'd have to organize I that. was basically an, the producer of the entire thing. That's when I, it wasn't just party planning, but it was producing it into the making sure that the band sounded right, doing the sound checks with them, making sure that the staff knew what they were doing, making sure that the Roseland staff knew what they were doing 
making sure the decorator was on time, making sure the food was on time, the rental equipment, all of that stuff had to happen. Um, I remember in those days, all the taxi cabs had a message when you got into it, you know, something like, hi, this is Judd Hirsch from Taxi, and <laughs> make sure you buckle up, blah, 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 stupid things like that. So yeah. I decided to, I put a recording like that in all the stalls at the men's room and ladies' room, so when they would walk in, as soon as they would close the door, that recording would go off. Um, the, <laughs> That's great. The whole idea was welcoming the Grammys back to New York. Um, Donald Trump was bankrupt at the time, so I hired a Donald Trump lookalike to sell hot dogs um, and talk to the people about how he was trying to pawn the ring that he gave to Marla Maples. Um, <laughs> so I mean, just little—it was just—it was really like a love story to New York. I had Anthony Faraz, who was a really cool decorator at the time, build a miniature Brooklyn bridge. Oh my bridge. god, I remember that. Yeah. And we had a Brooklyn bridge with people shucking clams and oysters underneath it. Um, you know, pretending it to be in Sheep's Head Bay. It was just, it was a fun homage to New York, you know, uh, to, in, in an offbeat way. But it was very successful, and they hired me for the next 16 years. Um, I w- wound up going coast to coast with them. Really? Yeah. So literally, when you say you had people shucking oysters, you had people selling hot dogs, you would literally, you'd have to think to yourself, all right, I have to go to wherever they stay on the, like, you know, the West Side Highway and, and rent one of those trucks. Right? How do you No, I, I, do I, went to, I went to different... I, I tried to do this as a New York love affair, so I hired people like Pino Luongo, who had uh, uh, a restaurant on 7th Avenue, and he, had, he was known for doing great pizza late night, so I had him come in and do pizza. And then uh, David Kay was the best Chinese food in town at, town at the time, so I had him come in and do the Chinese food. And the Sheepshead Bay people, I just went oh, out to the... Oh, they would cook the, on yeah, the spot. And they, I had the Sheepshead Bay people came in and just... I hired them straight from Brooklyn to shuck the oysters and clams. Um, I had uh, Smith and Walensky do a steak station. And, and this then, is before celebrity chefs became oh, yeah, the yeah, thing, yeah. the and then, and then we filled in the rest with, you know, Washington Street Caterers filled in the rest and did all the other stuff. But I... It was it was sort of like just great New York restaurants and great you know it was really celebrating New York. That's great. Uh, the following year, we were we we went to California and then we came back the year after that and we did it um, at the Armory on Twenty Seventh Street, and I changed the entire thing to New York a hundred years ago and created gardens and fountains and changed the whole concept of it completely. Oh wow. Um, but at that point, by after I produced that first Grammy event, my career sort of like went to a different level. Right. And then after the second Grammy event I did, it went to even a higher level. And then I got a phone call from Quincy Jones, and I wound up producing 50, the 50 year anniversary of Quincy Jones and show business. And working with him was amazing. As my hero. Um, and he, you know, he had me directing everybody who was on the album, and no, including really? leading a choir from Harvard, Harvard and Radcliffe Choir that his daughter was singing in, and the choir master never made it, so he said, "Well, you conduct it." And so he, <laughs> I conducted a choir, but it was, it was like my career went into a different level. Yeah. Um, I wasn't, I was, I was doing something that people just really didn't do in those days, or now. So then after that, I met a woman. I reacquainted myself with Madonna, and she hired me to do the uh, Sex Book and Erotica album launch. And that 
changed my career for good. That's what I wanted to ask you about, your relationship with Madonna. Um, when did you first meet her? Did you meet her when you were downtown? I originally was, met her back in the 70s in, 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 when I was in Soho. She, she was, was like Lady Gaga long before Lady Gaga oh, yeah. thought she, of being. She was, she was, you know, she was, a, she was the hot thing in town. She was, she was... I always thought Madonna was literally love her music and not love her music. I thought she was an absolute genius marketer. Yep. True. She was also like the hardest brilliant. working person I ever met. Really? Yeah. So, I mean, hands-on and, and, and involved in everything. When we, did the, uh, when we did the launch of Sex Book and Erotica, I mean, she was involved in every aspect of it. She gave me complete control, um, which was probably more power than I've ever had in my life. <laughs> um, but it was, it, it, was, it was amazing working with someone. Why don't you just describe that book? Or the album. Well, the album. Everyone knows that's the erotic album. The, time. Yeah, the, the erotic album is something. If you don't know about it, you don't know anything about music. Um, Come on, millennials. They they should know about it, or they shouldn't know anything about music. Um, the sex book was Madonna uh, with Steve Mizell, the photographer, did a nude portraits of Madonna in different stages, and we, she had different different stages of different themes to the book. So at the party, what I did was I took each theme and recreated the theme and recreated the S. So like for one thing, I she was a little S and M in the book. So I took a beautiful, tall, raven-haired model and put her in a black leather mask, net stockings, and four-inch heels, and put her in a bathtub and covered her with popcorn and made her a popcorn bowl. And um, <laughs> no matter how hard you stick your hand in popcorn, you can't. It, it stops at a certain. It, does, point. it doesn't go through. So, um, but it was uh, it, it was it was it was an amazing opportunity, which I will probably never have to do again in my life. But it was something that I um, I'm very glad that I actually did. I've, I've tamed my life a lot more now. Now I'm I'm producing events for colleges and for corporations and things like that because uh, basically I think they think I make them cool. But um, <laughs> I've I've tempered my my uh, my creative juices on that. I I really enjoy where I've be, you know where it's taken me. Uh, my father years ago said to me, every action has an opposite and equal reaction. So everything that you do at an event, if you start late, if you're if you're off kilter, if you're off schedule, if you're not rehearsed, um, it comes out. And when you when you look at any event, I don't care what kind of an event, whether it's a wedding or a, a corporate event or whatever. There's a logical beginning, there's a little middle, and there's a logical end. And you have to respect people's ability to pay attention to that at the same time. So the party begins an hour before the, they start when people are starting to put themselves into the mindset of arriving at the party. Then what happens to them from there is up to you. Either you can herd them around like cattle and stick them in corners, or you can treat them graciously throughout the entire course of the evening. But everything that happens affects that, and everything that goes on is a reflection of that. So if the music is not the right music, or it's too loud, or it's not the right song mix, all of those things have a way of taking whatever energy that you've created here and changing that flow. So I was always concerned about everything. Um, the music, the food, the light, the mood, the flow, the timing was... I was always nuts about timing, timing as you key. know. Yeah, yeah, I was always insane about timing. And right. 
Yes, and, and, and timing was everything to me. I mean, Bentley Meeker tells a great story about showing up at one of my parties, getting out of a taxi cab with lights in his hands uh, 15 <laughs> minutes before the doors were opening. And he, uh, he, he'd like to tell it to his staff. When I, still, I work with Bentley still to this day. Um, he's our partner at the plaza. And um, he'll say to his staff, you do not want Ronnie Davis to yell at you. And I took that as a compliment. Yes. <laughs> so, um, I did a bunch of parties with you with people for the American Way. This is when Walter Cronkite was like the heir to Edward R. Murrow, and he came out and he made a statement at this event that he says, I am a liberal. And the whole place went crazy. It became like front page news that Walter Cronkite admitted that he had like basically a party affiliation, that he was a liberal Democrat. That was the night Dukakis lost, the day after Dukakis lost to Reagan, and um, everyone was kind of depressed and feeling bad, but Walter Cronkite stood up there. He was giving the award to Barbara Jordan. Yes. And, um, before he introduced Barbara Jordan, he gave this speech about the fact that, you know, I am a liberal and this is why. And everything that he mentioned, from a woman's right to choose to, you know, equal pay for equal gender and, 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 and uh, civil rights and everything else, all the things are the still on the forefront of the Democratic agenda to the, even to today, and especially today in light of Mr. Trump right. and the Republicans. Um, so I think that it was a pretty big moment, but I remember everybody running for pay phones. Yeah. Because there were no cell phones. Is, what year is it? I can't even remember. What, 90? Is this 90? 91. 91. And um, it was pretty, pretty I, that was the year, because I was the guest chef that night. I had won the James Beard I was named the James Beard Celebrity Chef of the Year for, um, oh, for wow. events, and so I created the menu for that night. So, um, yeah, 91. And that was Bobby and Bobby Hammond, mm -hmm. who was always in charge of who that. Was my, who became one of my dearest friends. Classiest woman um, ever. She, she was, I was actually introduced to her by Paul Roebling, whose grandfather built the Brooklyn Bridge. Paul had hired me to do their, cent their, their centennial celebration for the family. He wanted me to buy out the River Cafe, but Buzzy O'Keefe wouldn't do that. So Paul, I hired a boat, and Paul I did the family on the boat in front of the River Cafe onto the Brooklyn Bridge. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> good thank Paul you. introduced me to Bobby, and Bobby introduced me to Norman Lear, and then the rest was history. Oh, wow. I oh, did, that's how they... I did people... people yeah, and I literally was just with Norman last week. We are still friends to this day. Um, because of his wife, I did the Climate Change Summit opening at the United Nations a couple of years ago when they were pitching climate change and uh, I did the opening session with, the, with uh, President Obama. Um, I've had an amazing career because of the people that I've met along the way. Right. And I've done things that my father never dreamt of doing as a caterer. Um, he did know about this before he passed. I was very proud of the fact that he knew what I had accomplished. I was just going to ask you. Yeah. Um, in 1999... An article came out in New York Magazine ranking the caterers, and I was it was Glorious Foods Abigail Kirshen, Washington Street Cafe, and um, the phone started ringing, and all these other caterers were calling to buy my company, and I really wanted to get out of catering at that time and just produce. That's all I wanted to do. Right. And I was negotiating with several of them, and finally, it really wasn't panning out. I didn't like them. I just felt like I was. I had always been independent. I had always been in charge of everything. I had always been the boss. And I didn't like the, the idea. So 
I called Liz Newmark at Great Performances and told her what was going on. Right. And I had met Liz some years before, and I always admired her, even though we were fierce competitors for almost 20 years. I just respected her. And I, respected I remember that, 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 that you two were like the top two caterers. Yeah, and I respected her a lot. And I told her that was going on, and it, I said, whoever buys my company will probably become the number one company in town for a long time. And to make a long story short, it took Liz and I six weeks to make a deal. Most people thought we wouldn't last three months, let alone <laughs> three years. I signed a three-year contract to be the managing director of Great Performances, and I was still the managing partner of Ronnie Davis Productions. And I was going to sail off into the sunset after three years and turn over my whole book of catering. Well, that's 20 years ago. And I'm still at Great Performances as the managing director. Which we're sitting here right now and on I have Hudson Street. no intentions of stopping anytime soon, but I am producing more. Um, so I, I'm, I'm, wearing, I'm wearing two hats in that regard. But I, I, most of what I've been doing as a producer, I think, has evolved because of my relationship with Liz and the fact that she's given me the freedom to grow this, and she's given me the freedom to develop this into some some new form. Um, and I, I owe Liz a lot. She's so a, using great performances as the catering company, you're producing. Correct. Right. Yes, and 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 she's also my partner in Ronnie Davis Productions now. So so it's always I was always confusing. It wasn't until I did so I started this podcast that it occurred to me that there was a difference because. I always thought of it as Ronnie Davis Productions, but I always knew that every time I'd go in, it was at least once a week to Washington Street. It was Washington Street Caterers. And you own Washington Street Caterers. So I what did. was the difference between Washington Street Caterers and Ronnie Davis Productions? Oh, when you would produce when I would an produce event for something, Madonna. When I would produce something in the Museum of Natural History or in a hotel or in another city or in another country, all of that was Ronnie Davis Productions hiring other caterers and doing other things. I mean, I've hired a, I've had a lot of caterers in New York City over my career. Um, and I, I enjoy the fact that I have a very good reputation. Okay, so that's the difference between a producer and a caterer. Correct. Okay. If you're, you're a caterer, you're working for a producer. You're working for a producer. Okay. Or you're doing it yourself. So when you had Washington Street, you were... And Ronnie, was, you were both. That's where I was the pioneer of that Which is, aspect of it. I can't believe you don't have an ulcer from that. No, I enjoyed it too much. There's a very, you know, there's two things that I live by. One of them is Gandhi said, "To really find yourself, you need to be in the service. The, the way, the best way to find yourself is in the service of others." I was born a caterer. I was born business. doing this. This yeah. is what I. This is my blood. This is what I was put on this earth to do. I have to serve people, I will to the day I die. When you, you're dealing with people's best times and their worst times, because uh, aside from the good things you do, I've had to produce my share of funerals and, mm. and sad events, but somebody has to be stoic and somebody has to think and somebody has to take care of people. Just recently? Yes. And so you, uh, there's, there's two sides to being a producer. Um, I enjoy it tremendously. Um, and the old adage, if you really enjoy what you do, you'd never really work a day in your life. Yeah, I love that expression. So that's what I still hold true and dear. Everyone says, when are you going to retire? I'm, why would I retire? Yeah, why? Yeah, why, why, why would I possibly retire? When I'm drooling and I can't think straight, we'll talk about <laughs> it. But I'm not at that stage yet. When I came to Great Performances and started catering, I just found that I 
had the ability to concentrate more on more on producing and more on more on making the event bigger and better than worrying about running a business. So it's been a very successful relationship because I'm free. I, I, Liz used to say, "What did, I used to say to Liz, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm free from the shackles of my independence." So, um, <laughs> uh, and it, it's been it's been a really great relationship. And Liz and I are still you know very close. We're very dear friends. Um, and like I said, there's a there's such a mutual respect for what each of us brings to the table. Um, that it's uh, I'm very lucky in that regard. She's like my fifth wife. <laughs> Ronnie she, said, yeah. she always claims that she wants That's to be literally she wants to be my longest female relationship. Probably so is. She's getting outside there. of your daughter. She's, she's, climbing, she's climbing there. We're, we're we're pushing twenty years, so she's already set that record. But um, That's a good record. Yeah. I'm I'm very I'm very happy. You played one of your weddings. <laughs> I think you did. I know. You I'm did. very happy and lucky to have had this career and to to do what I've done and to meet the people that I've met and to come across the Ann Richards and Barbara Jordans and Walter Cronkites of the world and Barack Obama. Um, I can go on and on and on and on with the people that I've met and the people that I've worked for. I remember one of my very first events. I was in Lauren Bacall's apartment in Dakota, and... It was for Phyllis Newman and Adolph Green's 25th wedding anniversary. Adolph wrote Singing in the Rain. Sure. And the entertainment was really kind of simple. Uh, Leonard Bernstein was playing the piano. Yusak <laughs> Perlman was, was there playing the violin. Um, it was ludicrous. Did that you was, rehearse them? <laughs> it was completely ludicrous. I staged them. It was like, seriously, do you realize who you're staging here? It was like, it was, right. it was completely ludicrous. But it was like... Um, I'm I'm very lucky to have opened up the doors that opened to me because of what I do for a living and because it really goes back to being of service. If you know when you have pride in service and you have pride in being of service to other people, only good things happen to you. I love that philosophy. I really do. I mean, that's that's really um it's funny. I didn't expect you to go in that direction. And it's very uh it's a warm thing to think about. I mean, like it's at this stage of life, you know. I think about what defines me, and what if everything changed tomorrow, what would I miss the most? And I believe that what I would miss the most is the is the is the end result of what I've produced about my work. I think that's the most satisfying feeling in the world is finishing an event, knowing that you just completed a project whether it be an individual event or a wedding, or right now I'm concentrating on taking some corporations and nonprofits on trips. And I have one client I've been working for for 16 years that I take every year. Oh, is that the real estate? Yeah, I take the them away every five, you know, five for six days. And you know, I design and create a whole adventure out of it. And when you finished it, I always feel like exhausted, like I've left a little piece of me out there. Um, but there's nothing quite as satisfying as knowing that this worked. And that's what I'll miss the most. Let me ask you a question. When, when you do a party out of town, when you're in New York, you've been living here for 40 years, you, you know everyone, you know every vendor, you know every possible thing that can go wrong, you know when, the, when every parade is, you know when, the, you, know, you know every, you've thought of everything. If, like you said, you did the Grammys in New York, then they flew you to L.A. How do you... How long does it take for you to go out there and find the right people? Do you have to interview the right people? Do you go by the uh, recommendations that you know? 
Well, like now, recently you told me you've been working with this real estate uh, friend of yours for the past, what, 16 years, and you fled uh, Spain? Or mm, all, all over the, all all over over the, the world. world. All so over when you go all over the world, it's like, how do you know? I mean, if you're at the plaza, you know where the brooms are kept. Well, you know, and, where... and, and, and the funny thing is, I did an event in Prague, and I did a tasting with the chef at this uh, convent that we hired, and um, it was awful. So I, I remember flying back to Prague about a month later with a recipe for soup and said, here, let's go into the kitchen and try this. And he did it. It was perfect. Um, quality is quality. I don't care where you are in the world. Service is service, and the good thing about being out of the United States when you go into Europe and to other places is that there's a certain pride in service that's unparalleled, especially places like Japan. Um, and service is something, is something that becomes second nature to them, and they wouldn't think of anything other than great service. Quality of food is something else that's also relatively easy to find no matter where you go. Right. Um, it's really a question of finding the right you know, operators and finding the right partners, the right strategic partners. To make That's what I mean. Work. I mean, when you're so far away from home, you, how do you, you find these make, people? You have to make everyone your strategic partner. You have to. You don't go in there and impose New York taste and say, "I know more than you do." And mm-hmm. this and they, they all go to my website and they look at my website and they want. To, I don't want them to go to my website. I want you to think about my client and think about what I'm giving you, what I'm tasking you with now. And think about that and be who you are. I try to extract the best of people all around the world, and therefore my clients enjoy it because I'm getting them to do what they're comfortable doing. I don't ask them. You never ask a cat to be a dog. So I'm never going to ask a caterer in Italy to do something American. I want him to do what he does best. I want him to right. do Right, or else why be in Italy? Why be there? So no matter where we've been, we've been, uh, we've been Japan, uh, We've been China, Japan, Hong Kong, um, Costa Rica, Panama, wow. uh, France, Italy, Spain, uh, Portugal, um, all over the place. There's, there's more. I'm not even. I, uh, we've been in, in some of these countries. We've been to multiple cities. Your passport must look like I'm a doing a Russia wedding. test. This, this spring, I'm doing a. I'm doing an event in Portugal in January. I'm doing an event in. Rome in March, I'm doing an event in Berlin in April, and I'm doing a wedding in Verona in June. So I'll be in Europe every month back and forth. And the trick is just to find good people who are willing to be strategic partners and who listen and who respect my vision. Now, who are the people? All right, so are these Americans getting married in Verona? Yes. So these are Americans that just decided to have the ultimate destination wedding? Yes. And... They fly how many guests? Um, there'll be about 150 people. So is this a society person? Is it a celebrity? No, I, I, I'd rather not say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, 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 I didn't mean specific the, names. The other thing about what I do is I don't believe that I own this work, which is why you won't read about me in the newspapers and you're not going to see me posting it on right, very low Facebook. Profile. I, don't, I don't post where I am or tweet. who I'm working for or who my client is. I mean, there's a certain sanctity and privacy that I have to respect. And I think because I've been doing that all these years, that's why I'm still working. Right. Well, if the very first thing you did with Madonna, you were sitting there fawning. Then I would have never done I remember that. you said this gigantic poster. Do you still have that? Yeah, I do. Yeah, too runny. What did it say? It was great. Uh, you give great party. You give great party. Um, 
Well, that is great. I, so the, the moral of the story is service. The moral of the story is integrity and in service. I mean, when someone hires you to do an event, whether they're saying, Doug, make Jews dance and you know, do my wedding, which I always thought was the greatest description of what you did. Right. Um, because when you see Jews dance, you, it's more a reason why you know why people shouldn't dance. Um, but and it, 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 no matter what you get hired to do, no matter what your aspect is, is a question of producing it with as much integrity as you possibly can and being honest with what you've told people and honest with what you've sold them and help the, the, create that vision for them. Because there's no rehearsal. There's no second chance. You have one opportunity to create a life event, whether it be a wedding or whether it be a corporate event, you have one chance to do this. You have one glimpse at this audience to, to see this work on behalf of somebody. And you always have to remember... And you don't see the audience until it's happening. No. And you, and, you, and you always have to remember you're doing it on behalf of somebody. You're not doing it for you. It's not my party. It's their party. And making everyone else sign on to that is sometimes rather difficult. But it's not about you ever. It's always about who you're working for, and what's their vision, and why are you there. And if you didn't like them, and if you didn't want to be there, and if you wanted to make fun of them, then why did you work for them in the first place? Don't take the job. Right. If you take the job, and you're putting yourself out there, then go 100% or don't go at all. That's a beautiful thought, Ronnie. Thank you, Doug. I've grown up a little. <laughs> yeah, this is great. You know what? You were always the same thing, just a lot more hyper- about it. I'm a lot calmer about it now. Uh, That's great. Um, Just one thing um, that I really distinctly remember. When we would do a party, whether a corporate party at Roseland or a wedding at the Plaza or whatever, um, you would always have the staff meet like an hour and a half before the event. what was always discussed in those? I, ne- I, was never, I never sat down in one of those. Well, you, you, get, you have to give instructions. Um, you know, no matter what you do, I, mean, if it's, I bring the tech crew and I'll do a paper tech and just run through the entire event and run through all the queues. When it comes to the wait staff from handling the event, you try to explain what's the agenda. You need to engage people. Remember, in New York City in particular, actors and actresses and models and dancers finance their careers by becoming waiters and waitresses for catering companies. And so they have other agendas in their life that are important to them. What you need to try to do is engage them to respect the fact that for the next five or six hours they are tasked with making this particular couple or this particular person or this particular charity satisfied. So if if they understand what the overall goal is and you engage them in that, they're not just working as waiters, but there's a little big extra spring in their step when they understand who they're working for and why they're doing it. So you, the meeting is an orientation meeting to, here's what you're doing, here's the courses, this is what we're happening, but understand all the nuances of what we did. And I just found it always to be a great way to be more successful than not by getting more people to be involved in your success. Very cool. I remember like when we first started playing golf, together you your business cards and this was 25 years ago your business cards said ronnie davis productions on the front and it said ronnie davis productions in japanese on the back uh japanese uh chinese i've i've expanded it yeah i've got got several different sets of cards is that because you 
working with them here, or you are going both? Well, going going there was there's a there's a whole art about presenting a business card to a Japanese person, and especially how so, how so, just for example. Well, for example, you have to take the card with both hands, and you have to present it to them holding it with both hands, and you have to do a slight bow as you present it to them, and they have to take it from you in both hands, and you have to read it. So if they hand you a business card, you can't just put it in your pocket. You have to read the business card oh. and study it, and then you can put it down. If you're sitting at a table at a meeting, you line up the business cards in the order of the importance of the person who gave it to you. All these little rituals wow. are really important, and they're very important when doing business there because this, that's a way of slighting somebody. Um, and so it's also the other thing is my name is hard to pronounce. Ronnie is hard for Japanese oh, the R. people. So it's always better to show it to them in writing in their own language so that mm-hmm. they know they're comfortable with it. It also makes them comfortable immediately that it was a sign of respect on my part, that I cared enough to... Right show them what what I do in their language. That's what I always thought was so cool. So how do you how do you learn these all the customs? Like when you go to Prague or when you go to uh, I've been doing Verona. This, I've been doing this long enough. I mean the first time. Hospitality is hospitality. I think it doesn't It's like what you said a while ago. If you're gonna if service you're, to service. If you're if you understand that concept, it doesn't matter where you are. It's, it's, it's really just a question of you know what good service should be. I mean, I have the luxury of having studied service under some very formal, proper waiters. I had a bunch of waiters that worked for my father who remember what, what, you know, what uh, prejudice was in this country and what segregation was. And they, a lot of them worked on the railroads. And some of the railroads in those days had some of the finest servers out there in the, in the cars. But they were 90% black. And they were impeccable. I mean, white glove service. They carried their own tools. They carried their own knives. Every, everything was just, it was a very professional thing and very pride, prideful in, in what aspect of service. And that's how I was raised, and that's how I was taught. Uh, there was a gentleman named Bob Devlin who headed up this whole group of waiters. It wasn't quite a union, but it was just a collection that my father would call and say, I need 30 waiters, and Bob would bring the waiters, and he would be the captain. Right. And, but these guys were, they're amazing. I mean, they were just, they were just amazing. And they I just come pressed shirts, I was just sparkling. So, I was always so impressed. And I was like, so I was, I was raised with, you know, in a kitchen and, and, and also, you know, in service that I understood what good service should be, and I always understood what good food should be. My father was an amazing caterer, and he was a great chef, too. And I always understood that the way to anyone's heart is through their stomach, and the best way to create any camaraderie with anybody is to break bread at a table. And that our job as a caterer was to simply make that happen and to facilitate that. That's it, pure and simple. I mean, there's nothing complicated about this. This is what we're supposed to do. And when I go around the world now, it's the same thing. Whether I'm going to book a restaurant or I'm going to book a catering hall or what I'm going to do, it, there's still a certain basic principle of hospitality that has to apply. So it becomes sort of easy to find the right partners. Right. Well, that is very cool. I, I've taken up far more of your time than I... Uh... Well, we can do a second podcast at another time. Exactly. Uh, Ronnie, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Good to see you, Doug. That's Ronnie Davis. Bye-bye.